Welcome. You are listening to the Financial Compass Podcast, presented by the Bowman Wealth Group. These shows are designed to provide information to both pre- and post-retirees, so they may be able to make more informed decisions about their financial future. Our Financial Compass process goes beyond traditional, holistic financial planning. We care as much about you and your lifestyle as we do about your plan. At the Bowman Wealth Group, we want to help you define what matters most and inspire you to go and do it. Your host is Bowman Wealth Group financial advisor, Scott Vallon, who for more than a decade has provided financial leadership for those he serves. Hello and welcome to the Your Financial Compass podcast. My name is Scott Vallon. I thank you for listening. Uh, If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you've been listening, like I said, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I've gotten a lot of great feedback uh, over all these months of recording this. Uh, Speaking of months, I'm actually recording this episode August 1st. It's kind of hard to believe my kids here in California go back to school in a week, which I know my wife's thankful for. But anyhow, that's not the topic of this podcast. In regards to topics, every episode I try to tackle something different, something that you know, hopefully gives you some information that's useful, or maybe it answers a question that you've had that you've been meaning to ask. Before I get into today's topic, uh, if anything you hear today prompts more questions or you want to talk further, you can reach out to us at askask at bullmanwealth.com. So that's ask at wealth.com. So today's topic is everyone's favorite. To a person, everyone always tells me how much they love paying taxes. Obviously, that's a joke. No one does. Uh, Every blue moon, I'll talk to someone that doesn't seem to mind it. But everyone else I talk to seems to, including myself. That's another story. So, taxes. Today's topic is how to avoid an unexpected tax surprise. If we know taxes are a given... It makes it even worse when there's a surprise, like, uh uh-oh, and there's certain moments in our financial lives that trigger them. So I want to touch on a few of them, explain what they are, explain what they mean, so you can hopefully avoid them or be mindful of them if you're going into that situation. And then I'll talk about some things that we can do, you know, to try to thwart that stuff or just stay out ahead of that tax surprise. So like I said, a lot of people like surprises. I don't like surprises when it comes to taxes, and I'm sure you don't either. So why don't we walk through some examples of a tax surprise, then I'm going to detail each. Then, like I said, I'll talk about a few strategies that we can utilize to to battle them. So here's a few examples. One is a sale of a home. Another is if you're rebalancing or maybe you're liquidating an investment account. Um, another is liquidating retirement accounts, say like an IRA or 401k. And speaking of IRAs, 401k is required minimum distributions. That is a topic I've done a whole podcast on, but we're going to dig a little bit further today. But one, let's start with the first one I mentioned, which is a sale of a home. You see it a lot where, you know, maybe someone's in a starter home, they're looking to move on to the next. Maybe they have multiple homes, they're going to sell one. Well, today I'm just going to talk about the sale of a primary home, not rental homes, second properties. That could be its own podcast. For today's conversation, I'll keep it to the sale of your home that you're living in. I'm here in California. 
just outside of Sacramento. I lived in the Bay Area for a while. And there was a lot of areas around there where people had lived in these certain cities for a long time. And they bought the houses relatively cheap. But over time, Silicon Valley blew up. The Bay Area got really expensive. Then when they were trying to move, they saw the tax bill or they sold their house, didn't think about the tax bill. And then they saw it and like, oh, my gosh. So let's talk about first off what that looks like. If we sell a home, say John and Jane Doe have a house, they're going to sell it for $600,000. And over the years, they've paid in $400,000. And you know, say the house is paid off, they sell it, they get $600,000. Hey, they walk away with a $200,000 profit. Well, profit is the key phrase here. Because I talk to a lot of people where you know, they don't always understand the rule of there's a certain amount that you can profit when you sell your primary home and it doesn't count against you. Here's the numbers first off. As a married couple, you can profit $500,000 on the sale of a home. So what does that mean? Say John and Jane Doe have a house, they're selling it for a million dollars. Over the years, between the down payment what they've paid into it, maybe upgrades. Say they've put $600,000 of their own money into this house, and they're going to sell it for a million. Well, in this case, they sell it. It's a profit of $400,000. Guess what? That's all theirs. They're under that $500,000 threshold where you know, say they sold it for $1.2 million and they put in $600,000. Well, then there's a $200,000 profit that will be taxed, and that's never fun. Where the surprise is, especially in these instances where someone's lived in a house for a long time, is what if the profit's, you know, a million dollars? What if the profit's 600000 What have you? And you're just not mindful of that. And then when you sell, you file taxes. It's like, wow, okay, I didn't realize the rules. So you always want to understand the rules going into it. If you're single, Maybe uh, you're divorced, maybe you're a widow, what have you. If you sell your house, that profit number drops. Where it's $500,000 if you are a married couple that you can profit. Well, if you're single, you can only profit $250,000, which is a whole different situation. So let's go back to the example. Um, When I lived in the Bay Area, there's a city called Pleasanton, a nice town that really increased in value over the years. And there was a woman who was divorced she had bought her house for, I think she had paid in $100,000 over the years, and it was worth a million. And she sold it without consulting anyone, talking to a CPA, what have you. And she had a $900,000 profit. Well, like we said, with a single person, you can only profit 250000 She was obviously not happy, <laughs> regretful, angry, everything that you can imagine. So, you know, the takeaway here is if you're going to be selling a house that's a primary residence, please be mindful of that. Because in the same city of Pleasanton, for example, like I was saying, there's other people's in that similar situation. They're almost, you know, in a way, a prisoner to their house. Because there was another single woman, I think she was a widow, if I remember correctly. She had the same situation. She'd paid in like 200000 The house was worth $1.2 million. She wanted to move, but she didn't want to sell and pay that gigantic capital gains tax, so she was kind of stuck there. Um, So the point is, 
when you're selling a home or you're considering selling the home, talk to someone, a financial advisor, talk to a CPA, talk to both about the ramifications of selling that property, what it means in regards to taxes. So you're not surprised. So that takes us to the next one that we're referencing, which is say you have a stock account, some kind of investment account that is not an IRA or a 401k. So just a regular investment account. Well, there can be some tax ramifications here. And I've seen it a lot of times over the years where if we make, you know, someone will come in, they've worked with other advisors and maybe it wasn't taken into account when they made large changes in their portfolio. So let's explain a little bit about what that means. Say you've got a portfolio of 10 different holdings, be it stocks, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds. If it's not in an IRA, when you make changes, say you're tired of XYZ fund and you want to move it elsewhere, if you have gains in that, just by trading it into something else, say you liquidate out of XYZ fund and move into ABC fund, well, if you've had gains over the years on that, even if you don't take it out as income, so you're just trading it within the portfolio, you pay taxes capital gains taxes in that regard. Then there's a difference between long-term, short-term capital gains, which has, I'll kind of stay away from today just to try to keep this thing at about a 20-minute time frame. Anyhow, so for making changes internally within one of those accounts, we need to be a bit mindful of, okay, and I'll, I'll talk about a strategy here in a few minutes, um, but always be mindful if you're making changes within there you know, a few thousand here or there may not make a difference, but what if you've had a fund or a holding for many years and there's $40,000 of gains? If you trade that into something else, guess what? Those 40,000 gains at that point are then realized as income. And when you're filing taxes the next year, that's a surprise. Let's be honest. Maybe you know all about it and that's great. If you don't, please be mindful of that. So just internal movement of funds Within an investment account, we need to be very cautious with that. Another mistake I see kind of in that same realm, though, is when a transfer is done. So let's just use Jane Doe as an example. So she's working with an advisor, and she's deciding to make a change to somebody else. Uh, so she's got you know, $100,000 in her investment account. She's going to transfer it to another advisor. In that instance, what someone would want to do is transfer it in kind. Here's what that means. It's a fancy way of saying keep it as is. So say Jane Doe has five funds. Well, instead of liquidating those out, she would transfer all five of those funds as they currently stand over to the new advisory firm. Then you can have a discussion as to what to do with it. Because here, if she were to transfer it, over to the new advisor and then immediately liquidate it because they want to make changes, guess what? You have to realize all those gains as income at that point, which triggers taxes. So when you're transferring accounts, I've had this happen too many times when someone comes in to meet with me and they've had that bad experience where, say that you know this Jane Doe, she had these funds, she wasn't thrilled with them, or maybe she inherited them, and after several years she wanted to put them into other things. Well, when it transferred to the new advisor or the new firm, instead of being deliberate and transferring it in kind, then making changes, they transferred it over, totally liquidated everything, then bought new investments. That triggers a tax. That is a scary, uh-oh, that's a mistake. 
and there's no do-overs. So just please be mindful in both of those instances. If you're transferring from one firm to another, if you're looking at changing advisors, or if you're making changes within a brokerage, non-IRA, non-401k account, to be mindful of those tax implications. I'll talk about some strategies to work around it here in a few minutes, but this is, you know, we're starting with with the surprises first. So the last surprise I mentioned earlier comes down to required minimum distributions or RMDs. And I've had other podcasts on this. If you're not totally sure what they are, check back in the episode log. I have one about it because they just made some changes this year. But what we found with a lot of folks, especially ones that we've been working with, with our firm, is once you get to a certain age, right now, say you're 72 next, this year, next year you're going to take turn 73 and you need to take your first RMD. Not in every instance, but in a lot of times what we've seen, people get that, that, to that age and they don't need that money. They, maybe they have a pension, Social Security, maybe their budget's lower, what have you. And all this RMD is doing is creating a bigger tax headache. First off, there's no way around it once, you know, you can't not take RMDs without getting a penalty. That's certainly not what I'm suggesting. It's just being mindful of, hey, I'm going to have to take some RMDs in the future. Maybe it's next year. Maybe it's 10 years from now. What can be done ahead of time, which, which I'll explain a strategy that, that we utilize sometimes. But the point is, we don't want to be surprised if we get to 73. Oh, no, I forgot about RMDs. I have a million dollars. Guess what? That's a large RMD on top of large tax uh, implication, large tax triggering event on top of all the other income you're getting. Another thing to mention, too, with RMDs is as we've discussed in the past, they've changed the age. So right now, between now and 2033, the RMDs start or the age where you need to start taking RMDs is 73. What if you're younger and you're thinking out ahead? By 2033, the RMD age becomes 75. Why that's important is because you're not being forced to take, you know, distributions from an IRA or 401k before then. And like I said, a lot of times we don't need that money. So we just kind of put it off to the side. It keeps growing. But because we can wait longer than we used to, by the time we get to 75, that gives it that much longer to grow, which makes, you know, in a way is good, but in a way is bad because, wow, I've, I've made more money. Now it's just more in taxes. So we don't want to be caught off guard by RMDs. It's something that we need to be mindful of where so many folks in this country are diligently putting money into their 401k, which is great. We have to be aware of what that means in the future when we're being forced to take it. We don't want to be caught off guard. So those are kind of the uh-oh tax surprises. So let's talk about a few ways that we can work around it, uh, especially with the IRA RMD setup and then making changes in an investment account. So first off, I've talked about this briefly in the past, but one thing we look into is called Roth Conversions. This is where we can start taking money once you're, you know, of a certain age, say you're 62. You're not going to be forced to take RMDs from your IRA until you're 75. So what we'll do is we'll start to look into, you know, pulling money from that IRA now, either transferring it into a Roth IRA or withholding taxes and transferring it. We've talked about, you know, the more intricacies of it. But the point is we convert, say we have a 10-year, 12-year, 13-year window to convert. Each year we can systematically convert some of that IRA 
to a Roth IRA, get the taxes out of the way now, then once we get to age, in this case, say 75, when you're forced to take RMDs, well, Roth IRAs don't have RMDs. So if over the years you've been disciplined enough to to make transfers and, and conversions, if you've converted it all, great, and you've got all this money in a Roth IRA, you never pay taxes again, guess what? You don't have to pay an RMD. You kind of prepaid the RMD, so to speak, by prepaying the taxes. Or maybe you converted half of your, your uh, IRA or 401k. It's that much less you'll have to take out of um, IRAs, 401, traditional 401ks, once you hit RMD age. So we can get out ahead of this. It's not always a slam dunk. With Roth IRAs, or Roth conversions, I mean. But it's worth looking into. So that's something that we can certainly do is Roth conversions, you know, just to get out ahead of it. Another thing to be mindful of, once it converts, we can't touch that money that we converted for five years. So that is a quick takeaway. You don't want to convert it and then say, well, I'm going to pull that money in a year to go on vacation. Whatever you convert in a given year, say it's $50,000, you can't touch that amount for five years. So please be mindful of that. Another thing that I like is what's called tax loss harvesting. So this moves away from IRAs, 401ks, into the realm of just regular investment accounts, brokerage accounts, as we said, that have capital gains. So there's something that we can do in those instances, what's called tax loss harvesting. It's a very fancy, fancy phrase. Let's just give a simple example of what that means. So say at the end of a year, we're looking at our account. And we've got, you know, our account's done okay, but say one of the funds, a stock or mutual fund, exchange-traded fund, say it didn't do well. It was down $5,000. At the same time, say we have a fund that's up $5,000. What we can do in that instance is trade out of each of them in equal portions and essentially offset them. You're going to offset the losses with the gains. And what that does is you get the losses out of the way, but maybe more importantly, you get those taxes out of the way. You're not going to have to realize taxes on that $5,000 that you gained because it's being offset by the loss. So this is something generally you start looking into towards you know the fourth quarter of the year. You'd want to look into this by the end of the year, but it's worth looking into because you know some years all the funds are doing well and hey, it is what it is. But in other years when we can offset some of the dogs, you know, the dog funds, quote unquote, with some of the good ones to offset some of those taxes. There is something to be mindful of, though, which is called the wash sale rule. So say you trade out of a fund, fund XYZ. Well, technically, you're not supposed to buy into that for another 30 days. You can buy it on day 31 after the trade, after trading out of it, but you can't sell out of a fund, try to realize the loss, then buy back into it within 30 days because they raise an eyebrow. That's not good. It's called a wash sale. It's the wash sale rule, and you don't want to do it. You'll you'll put yourself into into a predicament because they think you're kind of gaming the system, quote-unquote. So please be mindful of the wash sale rule, of, of the timing element of repurchasing a fund or stock that you sold out of and then buying it again a week later, two weeks later, you want to wait at least 30 days. So we're at the 20-minute mark, covered a few areas. No one likes, not many people like paying taxes and even fewer people like tax surprises. 
So if anything of what you heard today has you concerned, you want to talk more, you have some questions, feel free to reach out. You can reach us at ask at bowmanwealth.com. If you've been listening, leave a review. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcast, Audible, there's all these different areas, leave a review. <laughs> Good or bad, that's great. Uh, but for all the folks that have been listening, sending me great feedback. Thank you. It does mean a lot. Guys and gals, thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Scott Ballon. This is your Financial Compass Podcast. Bowman Wealth is an investment advisor registered under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Registration as an investment advisor does not imply any level of skill or training. The oral and written communications of an advisor provide you with information where you can determine to hire or retain an advisor. For more information, please visit advisorinfo.sec.gov and search for our firm name. This presentation has been provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as legal or investment advice or a recommendation of any particular security or strategy. Any statements or opinions expressed should in no way be construed or interpreted as a solicitation to sell or offer to sell advisory services to any residents of any state other than the states where otherwise legally permitted. Advisory services are offered through Chris Bowman, Inc., DBA, Bowman Wealth Group, and Retirement Wealth Advisors, RWA, Registered Investment Advisors. Insurance products and services are offered and sold through Chris Bowman, Inc., DBA, BWG Insurance Agency.